Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Luke. Lord willing, we'll be completing chapter 18 this morning. And as you reach Luke 18, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word, if you'd stand with me as we read it together this morning. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 18, and we're beginning in verse 31. And if you need a Bible, by the way, feel free to grab one off the the tables to the side, and, and you're welcome to keep that as our gift to you as well. Verse 31. Luke writes, And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and be shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You may be seated, may God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning, and let's pray as we continue our worship. Father, we pray for your insight. We pray that you would allow our eyes that are naturally closed to your truth to be supernaturally enlightened, that you would allow us to to grasp the the depth and breadth, the height, the width of of your truth, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, uh, my brother and I would, would take blindfolds, and, and maybe you, you did this as well. We, we'd take blindfolds and we, we'd tie them around our eyes and cover them up in order to, to we thought, simulate what it might be like to be blind. And we'd kind of walk around the house and, and bump into tables and doors and, and, and you know, stub our toes or, or else just walk really, really slowly around the house trying to, to feel uh, what it would be like to not be able to physically see. And what we found out in our limited understanding is we thought, man, this would be pretty miserable to not be able to see. You'd be bumping into things all the time. Well, the, as I found out later, that's not the best way to understand what it's like to not be able to see. Uh, the National Federation for the Blind says it's actually a, a terrible idea because you'll be bumping into things and hitting doors and tables and things like that. The, the National Federation for the Blind says, hey, if you want to know what it's like to be blind, what should you do? Ask someone who's blind. As you look at people throughout history who've been blind, you, you see that blindness doesn't destine a person to a life of misery. John Milton, the 17th century English poet, would say, uh, it's not 
miserable to be blind. What's miserable is to be incapable of tolerating blindness. In fact, he wrote a sonnet entitled, On His Blindness, and he shows in that, that sonnet some remarkable insights. He, he asks in the sonnet, Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? In other words, does God require me to continue to work when he's denied me the light by which to work? I'm blind. He goes on, though, But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. In other words, God doesn't need people's abilities, people's gifts. God is going to use those people that that do what God tells them to do. A blind person is completely capable of living a life in obedience to God, of living a life that brings honor and glory to him. Blindness doesn't prevent that. Physical blindness doesn't prevent living a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting life. But what is tragic, what does prevent a person from living a God-centered, Christ-exalting life is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness prevents a person from being able to live life rightly. And whereas a person who has physical blindness can can learn to navigate the physical world around them without eyesight, a person who's spiritually blind is incapable of living life rightly. As they come along circumstances and obstacles and situations, they are incapable of navigating those things correctly because they cannot see them spiritually. In other words, God, as he places you and I in different circumstances in life, has a desire for how we would function in those circumstances. You are in the workplace, and God has puts you in the workplace, and and he's put you around people in that workplace, and and some of them are really pleasant to be around, and and others, well, there are some who are really pleasant to be around, right? And others. And God has placed you there sovereignly, and he has an understanding of how you're going to navigate that situation, how you're going to live, and, and if you cannot see that situation as God sees it, you cannot walk the path that God desires you to walk. You're in school, and God has placed you around people who do not know him. God has placed you around friends or people you'd like to be your friends, and and these people don't know God or they don't know how to, to rightly live, and, and you're at the lunch table, and, and a friend says something that, that you know is really wrong. It's a wrong thing to say. It's, it's not God-honoring. It's, it's a, a thing that doesn't rightly reflect God's truth. And now you're thinking, how do I respond to this? Uh, if I respond one way, maybe it's going to be too harsh. If I respond another way, I'm not fulfilling my, my task as a, as a young person to, to stand up for God's truth and and how do I navigate this? And what if I'm mocked for saying this? What if the kids make fun of me, call me like a Bible thumper or something? I don't want that. Young people, if you don't have spiritual sight, if you're spiritually blind, you cannot find yourself in those circumstances and navigate them rightly. 
If you're in the midst of, of tragic circumstances in your life and, and you look around you and you see these, these tragic circumstances and you're wondering, how do I get out of this? You cannot rightly navigate that situation apart from having spiritual sight. Physical blindness is not something we would choose for ourselves, perhaps, but a person who's physically blind can do the things that God has called him or her to do. A person who's spiritually blind cannot. And in the text that we're looking at this morning, we're going to look at two stories. And we're going to take these stories and kind of compare them, juxtapose them, place them next to one another. In the first story, you encounter the disciples, and the disciples have physical sight, but they are spiritually blind. Some things are hidden from them. They're incapable of seeing things as God sees them. And in the second story, you encounter a man who has physical blindness and yet spiritual sight. He's able to see the circumstances in which he is in and see them as God sees them and has incredible spiritual insight. What's the difference between these two stories? What causes this blind man to respond differently than the disciples? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the difference is God's Word. The central idea I want you to grasp as we kind of talk through this is that Scripture allows us to see the, the salvation that the Messiah offers. A scripture allows, Scripture is like, like, a, like, a, like a set of, you guys have never looked so good. Um, a scripture is it's like a, a pair of glasses that allows us to, to look through life through, through, through those lenses, the lenses of Scripture, and, and, and things come into focus and we, we see things rightly. And apart from the, the lenses of Scripture, we, we can't see things as God desires us to see. And so you have these two groups, and in the first group, the disciples are, able to, are not able to see things because they're not looking at things through the lens of Scripture. The, the blind beggar is able to things, see things rightly as God sees them because he has spiritual sight because he's seen things biblically. Let's look, first of all, at what the disciples couldn't see. And we're looking here at verses 31 through 34. What the disciples couldn't see. Verse 31 says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so what Jesus does is he takes the twelve and kind of pulls them off to the side. And he says, Guys, remember where we're headed to Jerusalem. Now, Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus and his disciples headed to Jerusalem, right? In Luke's outline, we start off kind of dealing with the, the broader Roman world as the, the census is taken, and, and then the, the attention gets narrowed more and more and, and, until we, we see that we're headed to Jerusalem, and, and we're getting even closer to Jerusalem now. And as, as we get to Jerusalem, the central event in all of human history, in all of redemptive history, in Luke's gospel, is going to take place as the cross occurs. And then, uh, remember, Luke wrote not just only the, the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote the Gospel, or the book of Acts. And in the, the book of Acts, we're going to see that things start in Jerusalem and, and then spread out to the remotest parts of the earth. And so uh, Luke goes, 
from the world to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem the cross, and, and the central event of all of human history that, that changes the entire world. And then he shows how the, the cross and, and the gospel impact the entire realm of, of, of all of the known world. And so in the Gospel of Luke, we're getting closer and closer to the central event of Luke's Gospel. And he calls the disciples to him, and he tells them some things about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He tells them some things about the cross. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned what's going to happen in Jerusalem, is it? In fact, you can jot these down if you'd like. Luke 5.35, what does he say? In Luke 5.35, he says, The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. In verse 22 of Luke 9, Jesus will say, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Later in that chapter, Luke 9, verses 44 and 45, he would say to his disciples, listen carefully, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is important. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then how do the disciples respond? Luke tells us they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him. Luke 12, he, he talks about the, the baptism he's about to undergo in verse 50. Luke 13, he's talking and he says to, to the, the people to tell Herod that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow, and on the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Then verse 25 of Luke 17, Luke 17, 25, he says, the Son of Man must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so over and over again, he's talked to his disciples about the cross, about what's going to take place in Jerusalem, and the disciples hear that and they go, hmm, I have no idea what that means. And that's exactly what's going to happen in these verses as well, right? Why is that? Why can't the disciples understand what Jesus is saying here? I mean, you know, and I'm not trying to be, to be uh, funny here. Like, are, is there some sort of mental issue that they have where they're intellectually incapable of understanding the words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth? No. Jesus says these words, I'm going to die, I'm going to be delivered up, and, and then uh, you know, by, by the, the, the Jewish people to the Gentiles, they can intellectually understand those words that are coming out of his mouth, and then they respond and they go, huh, I have no idea what that means. Why is that? Why can't they intellectually understand what Jesus is saying? Let me see if I can help us understand why that is. And, and as, as we try to unpack this, what I want us to do is I want us to look at what Jesus said. In other words, what are the words coming out of his mouth and, and what he says is going to happen to him and, and why he says it's going to happen to him. And, and as we look at the, the what is going to happen and the why it's going to happen, I think we can understand why the disciples had such a hard time grasping it. So let's first of all look at what he said. What's going to happen to him? 
three things. Uh, first of all, look at verse 40, uh, 32. The first thing that's going to happen is humiliation. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be delivered over the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. So, so verse 32 talks about the humiliation. And there's a couple components to it. There's, there's this component where he's delivered over to Gentiles. And so the Messiah is given to Gentiles. Those Gentiles are going to mock him. They're going to treat him shamefully. And they're going to spit upon him. And so there's this whole realm of humiliating acts that are going to take place at the hands of the Gentile, to the Messiah. So there's humiliation, number one, as we're talking about what's going to happen there. I've, I've said before as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke that I think one of the interpretive obstacles that we have to really grasp what Luke is saying, one of the interpretive obstacles is that, that we don't live in a culture that understands shame. We're a culture that celebrates of people going on TV and doing embarrassing things to themselves. I mean, people who have no abilities, no talents, except to simply live lives that are publicly shameful become our celebrities, and we follow what they do, and, and they, they become these, these people who have momentary fame and fortune, and, and we live in that culture. And so I think we're in a culture that has a hard time really grasping humiliation. And in our culture, humiliation equals honor sometimes, but, but not all the time. I've never really undergone humiliating circumstances, you know, ultimately. Now, I can kind of get a taste for, for the emotional feeling that you might have whenever you're being humiliated. I can remember when I was a family pastor at Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, one of the things I was in charge of was vacation Bible school. And uh, that's a very difficult ministry to, to be in charge of. And you really uh, just love the people who, who step up and take charge of that ministry. And so the lady who had taken charge of it at Bethany Baptist came to me. And uh, whenever someone like that comes into your office and asks you to do something, you know what your answer is? Yes. You know, whatever it takes to keep you doing this ministry. So she came to me, sat down in the office. We're talking about all the things she's going to do. I'm so excited. And she goes, and the last thing. And I said, oh, dear. She says, the, the, here, here's, what I, here's what I'm thinking. It's not a big deal for you to do. She says, all I want you to do, um, we're raising money for missionaries, boys versus girls. And I'd like to tell the winner that they get to throw water balloons at you. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea. I'm not a person who enjoys water balloon. I don't, I don't enjoy getting wet. I don't enjoy a bunch of kids throwing things at me. And none of that sounds all that appealing. Now, you say, Daniel, this isn't a story that reveals a humiliation. This is a, a story that reveals you have no sense of humor. And maybe that's true. But anyway, uh, the, the, the big day comes. The boys won. And these uh, little demonic children circled around me, like 100 kids, and with, with glee in their eyes, uh, began throwing water balloons at, at me. And, and let me tell you, you, you think my attitude changed to it? No, I hated it more. Like, man, this is, how, do, how can they enjoy this? I think the whole enjoyment for this is like an adult's getting wet with water balloons. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't just water balloons that were being thrown at me. But that's water under the bridge, so to speak. Um, so, uh, the, uh, next year... They came to me again, and, and they said, would you do this again? I said, no, of course not. And so a few days later, I found myself being thrown water, having water balloons thrown at me again. And that's the story of why we decided to plant a church, because a senior pastor never has water. I better be careful. 
that, that's just like, that, you know, it's just a little taste of, you know, kids, they, they got enjoyment out, out of seeing, you know, this group collectively enjoyed seeing someone else kind of, you know, in a, in a compromising situation. It was, it was funny. And, and the, the kids and all, you know, cute hearts and et cetera, et cetera. I just have no sense of humor. Um, that's just a little taste of you. That, that's not even real humiliation. But, but you know what humiliation is? It's, it's a group or, or an individual or a group of people designed to, to bring shame upon another person, to, to cause another person to, to look less, you know, to lose status. And in our, again, in our culture, I think it's hard to understand, but, but we see glimpses of it in, in other cultures, and we see what happens in situations where humiliation and shame is intentionally brought upon another person, and we see it in horrific circumstances. You think about what our, our soldiers did to Iraqi prisoners in Abu Ghraib and, and the, the things they did in, in order not, not to kill these people, not, not to cause them physical pain, but to cause them emotional and, 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 and just uh, status humiliation. You think about what happened to our ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens. That mob wasn't content simply to kill the man. They wanted to do things to him before and after his death that humiliated him and humiliated our country. And the the desire was to to do things to a person that brought them shame. It's sick. It's grotesque. It's the mentality of a person who doesn't want just to harm another person physically. They want to get to the core of who they are. And so they do things that humiliate them. Maybe you've seen that, that picture of uh, two Nazis who are standing next to a, a, an old Jewish man in Nazi Germany. And they're teaching him how to correctly salute Hitler. It's humiliating. It's grotesque. It's designed to get at the core of a person and devalue them. These actions... Jesus said, are going to happen to the Messiah, God's chosen one. And they're actions that are designed to humiliate the person, to devalue them at their core. Jews are going to turn over another Jew, the Messiah, to Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to mock. They're going to shamefully treat. They're going to spit upon him. The second thing that they're going to do, what are they going to do? The second thing is they're going to kill him, flog him and kill him, part of this crucifixion process. And the third thing that's going to happen to the Messiah is going to rise again. That's the what? Humiliation, death, resurrection. Now the why. Why is this going to happen? And this is, again, we're getting at why are the disciples having a hard time grasping this? The why is because God sovereignly ordains it. This isn't some sort of accidental thing that's going to happen in the Messiah. This is part of the, the sovereign plan of God spoken of by the prophets. Notice that as he talks about all these things, all these things that are happening to the Messiah are in the, in the passive voice. These are things that are going to happen to him. These aren't things that he's actively doing, and it's because Scripture said these things are going to happen. God's behind it. Look back at verse 31. He, he says, um, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You go back into the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of man, and you see the way in which God said even then 
speaking to the, the serpent, he said that the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman is, is going to, to crush your head. And throughout the book of Genesis and, and throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme of descendant. There's this, this coming descendant, a, a, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, who, who's going to, who's going to, to be this, this Messiah. And we see, as we go throughout the Old Testament, this theme of sacrifice as well. Beginning in Genesis 4, there's these sacrifices, these blood sacrifices that are, that are needed in order to, to cover sin, to deal with transgression. And so you see this, this theme of, of seed and sacrifice going throughout the Old Testament. You see it kind of culminate in Isaiah 53. Uh, Pastor Mike already read this. Let me read a portion of it again. The prophet Isaiah, is, is in 52, he's talking about the salvation that's coming to Israel. And then in chapter 53, verse 1, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We, we've sinned. We've turned every one to our, his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus is saying here to his disciples, the things that were prophesied concerning me will take place. They must take place. The seed and the sacrifice that is the Messiah will take place in Jerusalem as has been prophesied. It will be fulfilled. It will be completed. And how do the disciples hear those words? It's kind of almost humorous, verse 34, the way Luke words it. But they understood none of these things. Okay, so number one, they didn't get it. This saying was hidden from them. Okay, we get it. They, they didn't understand. And they did not grasp what was said. Did they get it? No. Did they understand it? No. Did they grasp it? No. Why? Because they weren't looking at the situation through the lens of Scripture, were they? They were looking at the situation, understanding some Scripture, some biblical understanding, but their cultural understanding of, of who the Messiah was to be and, and the type of shame and suffering that, that he should undergo, it, it wasn't on their radar screen. As they thought about this culture of honor, the idea that the Messiah would suffer dishonor, didn't connect. The Messiah was supposed to give it to the Gentiles, not, not take it. 
not be humiliated. He was to cause humiliation. And because they didn't look at the situation through the lens of Scripture, they were completely blind to what Jesus was saying. When I was in high school, a friend gave me one of those uh, pictures with all the, they have all these dots on them, and they're, they're called magic eye pictures or, or 3D pictures. And so you, you look at the picture until your eyes, like, start bleeding or something, and, and eventually you're able to see this kind of 3D picture, okay? And so this person gives me the, the picture, and it's in this glass frame, and I, I begin to look at it, and my eyes start to water, and I look at it, and look at it, you know, I'm seeing all these, all these dots. I'm like, I, I, I see nothing. In fact, I, I think I'm losing my vision here. It's, it's just very frustrating. And a person came along and, and saw me straining to see the thing and said, what are you, what are you looking at? I said, well, I'm, I'm seeing all these dots. And I'm, I, eventually these dots are going to magically appear into this 3D picture. And they said, no, no, you're looking at it wrongly. Don't look at the dots. Look beyond the dots. So what do you mean, look beyond the dots? He said, well, look Imagine that you're looking at a point beyond the picture. You know, if there's a glass frame there, look at, look at your reflection. Like you're looking at, at some, your eyes are focused on some point beyond the dots. And as you focus at that point beyond the dots, your, your eyes are able to view the dots rightly, and your mind is able to see this 3D picture. And sure enough, I, I didn't look at the dots any longer. I begin to look at this point off in the, the distance, this, this point in the, in the distance. And as I did that, my eyes were able to see this, this 3D shape emerge from those little dots. Sometimes in our lives... We can't see the world as God wants us to see it because what are we looking at? We're looking at the dots. We're looking at the specific circumstance. And we're saying, you know what, as I, as I look at this specific circumstance, the way that, that God would have me live here doesn't seem right. I, I, I don't think that whenever God says that I'm supposed to, to um, share the gospel with my friends, when I'm supposed to to uh, obey authority correctly. I don't think he understood my teacher. You know, when he talks about authority, I'm pretty sure he didn't mean this person in my life that's an authority figure, this teacher, this boss. Whenever God said that I needed to turn the other cheek, whenever Jesus says that I need to 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 love my enemies, I'm pretty sure that he didn't mean this person. We look at the specific circumstance and we say, as we look at the dot and we say, ah, I, I just don't see the world as God sees it here. What does God call us to do? Look beyond the circumstance. Look through the lens of Scripture. Look at something bigger than yourself. And the world begins to come into focus rightly. The disciples can't see this circumstance correctly because they're not looking through the lens of Scripture. They're not looking at it as God calls them to look at it. They're looking at it through their lens of culture, through the lens of their circumstance, and they're saying, doesn't make sense. Can't understand it. Can't grasp it. They're not stupid people. They simply can't understand what God is saying because they're not looking at it as God calls them to. As we see here, God's instruction and the disciples' inability to understand it, we see that there are things we can't understand without Scripture. There are things that you're going to be unable to grasp without God's Word. One thing we see here is you, know, you cannot grasp the, the sacrificial atoning death of, of Christ apart from, from understanding Scripture. You, know, you look at people throughout 
history who've, who've looked at the cross and, and haven't found the, the beauty in the cross and haven't found the, the beauty in the, the sacrificial work of Christ. And, and how do you have to understand the cross? You understand the cross in, in light of Scripture. It allows all of human history to make sense. I'm reading this book right now on, on, on communism. Um, it's against it. And as it, as it's, I think it's called Communism, in fact, by, by Brown. And so this book talks about Karl Marx and his view of history. And, and Karl Marx, you know how he saw all of hu- human history? He saw all of human history as a, a battle between the, the haves and the have-nots, between the, the people who had the means of production and, and those who didn't, between the, the rich and the poor. And all throughout human history, he saw every event in human history, he saw through the lens of this, this class struggle. The same thing is, is true in our his ideas have been very influential in our, our current world. You know, we, we see things a lot between the people who don't have and the people who have, the people who want things and the people who don't want things. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Let me suggest to you that's not the right lens through which to view human history. All of human history is a struggle between God and those who are in rebellion to God. And you cannot understand human history and the future of humanity without understanding through the lens of Scripture, the sacrificial, atoning work of Christ. It's the central event in the Gospel of Luke. It's the central event in redemptive history. It's the central event in human history. It's the central event in the history of the universe. And you can't understand it apart from Scripture. The other thing you can't understand apart from Scripture we see here is you can't understand the glory and shame You can't understand the glory and shame apart from God's Word. That's what the disciples couldn't see. They couldn't see the glory and the death of Christ, the glory and shame, apart from God's Word. They weren't looking at God's salvation as revealed in Scripture the way they should. That's what the disciples couldn't see. Now now let's talk about what the blind man did see, what the blind man saw. Look at verse 35. And by the way, as we look at this story, and know that both Matthew and Mark also deal with this story. And and each of the gospel writers kind of focus on some different elements. Matthew reveals that there are actually two men here. Now, Mark tells us that this one guy's name that we're focusing on here was was Bartimaeus. And some believe that Bartimaeus became a prominent member in the, the church in Jerusalem. So perhaps the purpose of Mark and Luke is to just focus on Bartimaeus here because he became the, the more prominent individual. But there are two men here, and uh, this story happened after Jesus had been in Jericho for, for some time, perhaps a couple days. And so as this story takes place, we're going to focus on those elements that Luke wants us to focus on. But, but uh, notice in, in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 that there are some other elements of the story that are also important as, as you read through it. So uh, Jesus is near Jericho. He's he's in the the vicinity of Jericho. And there's a blind man who's sitting by the roadside begging. Jerusalem was about 18 miles from Jerusalem, about a mile and a half from old Jericho that you you read about in uh, the book of Joshua. And in Jesus' day, you could have still seen the the walls that had fallen outward. Uh, So here in Jericho, uh, this new Jericho, there's a blind man sitting on the side of the road. And this would have been a very good place for him to sit. He was part of that society that were the, the expendables, the 5 to 10% of the population who were completely dependent upon other people's mercy to, to survive. And so he's there on the roadside begging outside of Jericho, a city that was 
prominent in Jesus' day. It was a tax collection center, and so people would travel to it frequently. And this blind man would have had the opportunity to hear a lot about Jesus' ministry, perhaps, as Jesus ministers in the various regions. People are traveling, they're talking, and he would have heard about it. He heard about what Jesus was doing in Jericho during the days that he's there. What happens? Verse 36 the blind man is, is hearing a crowd going by, and so there's this, this larger group than normal on the road, and he, he sees the, or hears the, 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 the crowd, the hustle and bustle of people going by, and he recognizes that it's higher traffic than normal, and so he asks, hey, hey what's going on? And someone tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The blind man hears this, verse 38, and he cries out, uh, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we're going to talk in just a moment about what a, a great statement that is in just a moment. But, but he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and the people who are at the front of the crowd hear him saying this, and, and they rebuke him. They tell him, what you're saying is, is wrong. It's inappropriate. This isn't the opportune time. You need to be quiet to this blind beggar on the side of the road. The beggar has several options at this point, right? If you're a person on the side of the road, dependent upon other people for your sustenance, and suddenly people are, are turning on you, a large group of people, telling you not to do the thing you're doing, uh, some of us might say, yeah, it is time for me to be quiet. <laughs> or some of us might say, yeah, I don't want to be quiet, but I don't want to incur the wrath of the crowd. I'll just kind of tone it down a notch. Like, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus. Or maybe I'll just keep going at the, the same level that I've been going. This guy responds differently. <laughs> Bartimaeus, as people tell him, essentially, very rudely, shut up, he gets louder. He cries out all the more. As people attempt to suppress what he's saying, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What compels him to continue to cry out to Jesus? Bartimaeus understands something about Jesus. He has some insight, some sight into who Jesus is that those around him do not have. This insight, this sight, this vision comes from an unlikely source. If you and I had been there surveying the crowd, the, the people who are with Jesus, there's his disciples, there's probably some prominent people in society that are there that are at least seeing what's going on. There's some scribes, some Pharisees always seem to be around. And you and I were to look at the crowd and see all those people and this blind guy on the side of the road one of the expendable members of society, and I were to ask you, who do you think has the best insight into who Jesus is right now? He would have been one of the last people you selected. Oftentimes, our, our prejudices cause us to not be able to, to see the, the truth of God where it's being revealed, the people it's being revealed through. This guy begins to cry out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a theological truth that he's proclaiming about Jesus. If you can, just for a moment, keep your finger there in Luke 7 and, and turn back to the book of 2 Samuel. 
2 Samuel is before the book of Psalms and before you get to Job and it's before First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You come, to, you come to Second Samuel and Second Samuel seven. Nathan the prophet is speaking to David and he's speaking to him the words of God. Second Samuel seven verse twelve. Uh, Samuel is to, or uh, Nathan tells David this: When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking through Nathan. When your days are fulfilled. David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And who's that? Solomon. He shall come from your body. He's going to be your son, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, this Davidic covenant is promising David that his kingdom will not end. And so the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers rightly understood that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David and would be the Messiah that would establish an eternal kingdom. And we go through the Gospel of Luke and we see Luke mentioning this, Luke highlighting this. We see that Joseph is a descendant of David in Luke chapter 1. We see that uh, they're told that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's what Mary is told. Joseph, we see in, in chapter 2, verse 4, is, a, is, is part of the descendants of David. They go to Bethlehem, the town of David. We see in the Gospel of Luke, and we see in, in Matthew, the, the people, we see in the Gospel of Luke, and in, in, in the book of Matthew, and in Mark, that Jesus is going to be, or Jesus is the, the son of David, the descendant of David. But you know what? This, this incident with Bartimaeus, is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that a person proclaims it. This link to David, this messianic link, this, this, this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah as the son of David, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke we encounter it. And it's not coming from a disciple. It's not coming from a scribe. It's not coming from a Pharisee. It's not coming from a lawyer. It's coming from a blind guy on the side of the road. The lowest of the low in terms of the the Jewish social scale. What causes him to pursue and calling after Jesus? Because he has insight that causes him to rightly value Jesus. He sees this because of God's word. He understands what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, and so he values him. In Isaiah 61, remember Jesus has read this passage before in the Gospel of Luke, but it tells that what's one of the things the Messiah is going to do? The Messiah is going to lift up the oppressed. He's going to lift up the oppressed. The blind are going to receive sight. And as 
this blind person on the side of the road looks out at this situation. He sees it rightly. He sees it in a way that no one else does that causes him to treasure Jesus and to scorn shame in order to receive the treasure of Jesus Christ. Uh, Whitney and I ha- have been uh, very excited about the, the coming Chick-fil-A in Peoria. In first service, a couple of people said amen. So, I, you know, big surprise, an evangelical Christian is excited about Chick-fil-A coming to town, right? Uh, but I'm excited. I'm excited about Chick-fil-A. And I've told Whitney how excited I am. And she said, yeah, we're, we're going to go wait in line to get free Chick-fil-A sandwiches. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then she says, yeah, it's going to be like you get tickets and you, you wait for like 24 hours in line. I'm like, well, huh? Wait, what? My excitement I'm reconsidering how excited. Am I that excited about Chick-fil-A? How, how many free chicken sandwiches am I going to get? My excitement is kind of dependent on how valuable the, the prize is. I'm telling her, you know what? KFC is also nice. You know. The links that will go to obtain something show how greatly we value it. The blind man is willing to endure the the shame of the crowd because he sees the value of the Messiah. And he sees the value of the Messiah not simply because there's a lot of crowds around, but because he's he's looking at at Jesus through the lens of Scripture. Even when he says, have mercy on me, that's a cry that one gives to the Messiah. It's a a Davidic cry that we see in the Psalms. Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me. The, The blind man sitting on the side of the road has spiritual insight that no one else and this circumstance does. And so he cries out, Jesus, Messiah, Son of David, have mercy on me. Fulfill your, your messianic mission in me as you, as you come to establish your kingdom as the, the, as the blind receive sight. Do so with me. And Jesus hears this man crying out in, back here in Luke 18. And Jesus asks him to be brought to him. He commands him to be brought to him in verse 40. And then he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And and an irony, by the way, that the same crowd that has been telling this guy to be quiet now says, oh, come come here, come here, Jesus wants you. What do you want me to do? Verse 41, Bartimaeus replies, Lord, let me recover my sight. There doesn't seem to be any question of of the ability of Jesus to perform this action. What this blind man is asking is, is will will you do this for me? Will you allow me to, to participate in the blessing that can be received through the Messiah? And how does Jesus respond? He responds affirmatively. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And what happens? He follows Jesus. He becomes a, dis- a disciple, a follower of Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, begin to glorify God as well. What distinguishes the blind man from the disciples? Simply the ability to see Christ through the lens of Scripture and interpret their circumstances in the light of Scripture. The blind man is able to see 
that laying hold of the salvation that, that Christ offers is, is worth being mocked. Literally what Jesus says here when he says your faith has made you well, literally means your faith has saved you. The blind man is able to understand through the light of Scripture that God loves the outcast despite what the voices around him are saying. The blind man understands God loves the outcast, and we see that God is uniquely glorified through the praises of the oppressed, through the praises of the disenfranchised. God is, is glorified in the weak. Scripture gives us sight. Scripture gives us sight so that we can see that the salvation that comes through the Messiah. This week, God is going to place you in circumstances. He's going to, to put you in places that require spiritual sight. If you are physically blind, it would not prevent you from being obedient in those circumstances. But spiritual blindness is tragic because it renders you incapable of seeing life as God sees it. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our hearts can be transformed. And we have the ability in our workplace, in school, in home, in our neighborhood, in church, to see things, to see life as God sees it, and live lives, walk the path that brings glory and honor and exaltation to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus, that as we receive him, we can receive sight and spiritual insight that allows us to live in a way that brings you glory and praise. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.